Welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, and Change Lab Solutions. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and, hopefully, to answer some of your questions. For more information on the legal response to COVID-19, please check out our report, The COVID-19 Policy Playbook, at www www.covid19policyplaybook.org. I'm George Contreras, a professor of law at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law. Joining me today are Professor Brooke Baker at Northeastern University School of Law and Ana Santos Rechman, Assistant Professor of Law at St. Louis University School of Law and Director of the Law and Policy Corps at the SLU Institute for Vaccine Science and Policy. So today's topic could not be more timely or important. Vaccine access around the world during COVID-19. Half a dozen vaccines have been approved and are in production around the world for COVID-19, but the supply of those vaccines has proven not to be sufficient for everyone in the world and possibly won't be for years. What do we do about that? Um, Is there anything to be done? And uh, what are some practical next steps that we might take in the United States or elsewhere to deal with this problem? Um, Professors Baker and Richman will be talking about these issues uh, for the next 20 minutes. So, first question I have, I'll address to Professor Rutschman first. Right now, what is the biggest obstacle to increasing the manufacture and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines around the world? It is It is a great question because I think it speaks to two things that we've known for a long time we were not particularly good um, at and we, we failed to do. So the first um, thing I would say is that we're talking about a technological um, problem. We do have vaccines that have been authorized based on different types of vaccine technology, including a newish type of vaccine um, technology, but we lack uh, in many ways the capacity um, to produce the vaccines at the scale we would need um, to. And this is a lack of pandemic preparedness that it, I don't think it's tech, you know technology specific, but we, we've seen this coming. We've been warned uh, about this, and it's obviously difficult um, to, to bounce back um, from, from this. There are mechanisms that I think we're discussing um, that are being um, either tried or in place to help uh, facilitate increases in, in production, but we do have a technological problem in that we can't just ramp up production of vaccines to the point we, we would need um, to be doing um, at this point in, in the context of a pandemic. And the second thing I would um, say is more on, on the legal side of things. I, I would frame it um, on the negotiation uh, at the negotiable um, level, there are many things that can be done uh, prior to the onset of a, of a pandemic or earlier um, than the point we're at that have not been done. So a lot of tech transfer, for instance, um, and transfer of knowledge that we need to ramp up um, production has not been negotiated. So we're dependent on voluntary actions, and this is not exactly you know the ideal time to be um, negotiating that. So uh, having had some things in place beforehand, uh, for these transfers to happen uh, in, in a speedier fashion would have been helpful. And I think these are the two main failures at this point. Fantastic. Well, we'll come back around to the legal questions in just a second, but let me just ask you a clarifying question on the technology. So you briefly alluded to uh, what we know as uh, the mRNA vaccine technology, which is a new technology, but not all of the COVID vaccines are mRNA uh, vaccines. Are we having more technological problems with this particular mRNA technology? Or, or is this a problem that cuts across the board with all, all the vaccine technologies that are out there? You know, my reading of the situation
situation. And whenever you have a biological um, at stake, this is bound um, to happen. So in previous um, public health crises, and some of them affecting the global south in the ways that the access to vaccines presently is, is um, doing, um, depended on a different type of pharmaceutical technology. And we could much more easily replicate conventional um, drugs. I'm thinking um, the HIV AIDS crisis, you know, a few, a few decades ago, which continues to today, but there was a much more uh, clear technological path to replicate those um, those products. That, that's not just the case with vaccines. I, I, I think that although the technology of each one of these vaccines is slightly different, just the idea that we can do what we've done before, we're struggling with that right, right now. It's very hard to replicate a vaccine without some degree of infrastructure that we've not planned for and without some degree of collaboration from the manufacturers and patent holders. So with biologics in general, that's just very hard from a technological perspective. Great. Thank you. Professor Baker, uh, what do you view as the biggest obstacle, or, or uh, uh, unless uh, you, you you agree uh, completely with Professor Well, I, I, I agree with a lot of what uh, uh, Anna has said, and, and I, I do think that um, the issue of who owns the technology, uh, how op- open it is in terms of uh, the, the knowledge and, and technical expertise that is represented in the different uh, vaccine platforms is critically important. Of course, there are other, you, you asked for the single most, and, and, and there are multiple things that have to happen. I mean, everything from, you know, the technology transfer and increased manufacturing capacity and repurposed manufacturing capacity, health systems, procurement and distribution, adequate funding. I mean, none of it is sufficient in its own, but, but some things are quite necessary. The piece of the puzzle that I focus much more on, which I think is a, a major barrier, uh, are intellectual property rights that the vaccine originators now have used to enclose the technology expertise uh, and, and, and special know-how that Anna has referred to. The system of patent protections, uh, more important in the vaccine context, confidential information and uh, trade secret information, including for biologic, the biological materials themselves, uh, in some cases for other technologies, even copyright and industrial designs. And basically, we have allowed, uh, even though there's been considerable public financing of vaccine development and <clears throat> clinical trials and, and expansion of, of manufacturing capacity through public support, actually in the in the neighborhood of $100 billion globally uh, and well over $20 billion in the U.S. alone. Uh, despite all that investment, we have let the companies hold those exclusive rights, which have allowed them to, in my opinion, artificially restrict capacity uh, supply to charge prices much higher than the cost of manufacture. And then to, through their right of, to control distribution, to preferentially provide uh, uh, vaccine access to rich countries that can afford to pay more and that help to subsidize their initial efforts. And so we have, as a result of this uh, system of prioritizing intellectual property protections, we have what is now called uh, 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 vaccine apartheid. Uh, I think where uh, Anna and I have disagreed a, a bit in the past is, uh, will overcoming intellectual property barriers in a formal sense get you the full bucket of technology that's needed and technical expertise that's needed for comp- for other companies to quickly come on board in terms of being able to produce uh, you know good quality product that is safe to use uh, you know globally and and I think we have s- some slight difference of opinion about that particular issue but I would say that when you've enclosed that kind of technical knowledge within a, a set of exclusivities that, that that's a barrier that needs to be overcome there, there still may be additional things that have to happen to incentivize uh, 
technology transfer to aid in the absorption of that expertise by people who don't have it already and companies that don't have it already. But it would be so much easier to address that narrow problem of of, uh, what is some kind called tacit knowledge or or some very specialized technical expertise. It'd be a lot easier to deal with that smaller part of the puzzle if we took away all the surrounding intellectual property exclusivities that don't even allow us to get to that more central problem. Okay, great. Thank you. So, uh, so turning back to uh, Professor Rushman. So, so both of you have mentioned a number of obstacles uh, that face us today, but obviously these challenges are well known to many people uh, around the world in government and science. And and somebody is uh, taking steps to try to address them, uh, maybe successfully, maybe not, both at the national level, at the international level, um, the United Nations, uh, and so forth. So how successful are current efforts um, to overcome these technological obstacles? Is, are, is any progress being made with any of these? I think there's certainly, you know, incremental progress being made. And again, in the context of a pandemic and recognizing that there's long been failures in pandemic and epidemic preparedness, um, even incremental steps, I think, are, um, you know, are good news, if, even though um, they're, they're largely, um, I think, um, insufficient. Um, there is something that's not strictly, I would say, related to intellectual property, although I think intersects with um, IP's exclusionary uh, regime, um, which is more at the allocation level of vaccines. We have taken some important steps in that in that area by at least creating a, a structure that, albeit limited, um, has the ability to introduce some fairness to this allocation process. And I'm talking about COVAX, uh, which is uh, an international uh, public-private partner which I've been critical of um, in, in the past, the way it has been structured, dividing um, outcomes between countries that self-fund um, their participation versus countries that do, do not. But I think they provide, um, you know, some um, at the remedial level, they provide uh, a useful uh, framework by getting us out of the um, vaccine, um, to, use, uh, to use Brooks' um, expression, apartheid situation, the global south versus the global north. Now, this is not enough, right? We, we, we keep hearing uh, about uh, severe uh, imbalances in the way we allocate vaccines, uh, vaccine hoarding by countries in, in the global north uh, and, and the like. So I, I think we actually have the legal tools to some extent to, to at least continue ameliorating that, that, um, that problem, to uh, at least nudge some countries uh, to donate, right? This is something they can uh, commit to doing and they don't exactly do it, right? They either sit uh, on, on supplies um, or uh, at, at some point decide to do it, but they don't commit to some trigger that would actually make them donate surplus vaccine doses. So I, I see some progress there. I'm not entirely happy with uh, with the landscape. If you're asking me about ramping up production of vaccine technology, on the other um, hand, I think pro- progress has been much, much um, slower. Um, I don't necessarily think um, that doing anything uh, with intellectual property at this point is going to help us much. We're far too deep um, into into it, and reliant uh, reliant on uh, voluntary collaborations, which are not happening to the extent we'd love uh, to see them. But we also have an infrastructure um, problem. My my understanding from talking to a lot of people involved in the transfer tech that's actually happening for these vaccines is that some promising sites turn out not to be you know as fully equipped as we we would have hoped that um, as we would have hoped. So in in this context. 
I do think that um, things that might have worked in other um, outbreaks, compulsory licensing, for instance, or the version, not compulsory licensing, but sort of the blanket approach that the, the proposed waiver uh, would take. Those are things that I don't think, I think it's too late, basically, for, for those things to be considered. And we have the infrastructural problem that we have not quite sorted out. Okay. Professor Baker, what do you think? Is it too late to pursue these intellectual property measures? Well, I, I don't think it is, uh, because the as I hoped to describe earlier, IP has been the major uh, constraining factor or a significant constraining factor um, and has led us to the predicament we're in. So uh, if not now, when would we start to dismantle some of those uh, barriers to produce capacity that will uh, help us at the later stages of this pandemic, because it's not going to end uh, end of 2021 or even end of 2022, but also to be prepared globally with uh, sustainable, adequate, distributed, democratically controlled production capacity in other regions of the world besides the global north uh, and, and some contract manufacturers uh, in the global south as well. So the reason I'm not quite as optimistic, I think Anna feels we're so path dependent on the system we have that we're not quite sure we can, you know, that we can do anything uh, to get us out of this mess. So we have to essentially ask for more of the same from industry. They have entered into a lot of bilateral agreements. They they say they have over 280 contract manufacturing and supply agreements, 200 of which have, uh, have supported some technology transfer. And we know that they've basically gone from ground zero in terms of being able to pr- produce either mRNA vaccines or, or, or uh, the viral vector uh, vaccines to being able to produce hundreds of millions of doses. Now, you know, we, we estimate probably at this point in time, something close to 2 billion doses globally. Uh, and, and they've done that in a matter of months. And so my, my question is, well, if they were able to do it in a matter of months with significant investments and also with public supports, why, why couldn't someone else if the technology was made available? So there are several things to try to force them to do that. There, there was initially at the very beginning, uh, an effort to create a voluntary technology access pool, the COVID-19 uh, pool. There's also the, the COVID pledge that, that you and others worked on that to try to get intellectual property uh, rights from companies. But by and large, especially the, the biopharmaceutical industry and even the diagnostic industry has not joined those technology access pool initiative. They have not engaged in the kind of large-scale, voluntary, not tightly commercially controlled uh, agreements that, that we would like. And that's what prompted South Africa, India, and now the other 61 countries that support them to offer a proposal at the World Trade Organization to waive intellectual property protections on COVID-related medical technologies for a period of time. And the latest text was is for a minimum of three years. And again, that's the that's the because of the absence of sufficient voluntary action by industry, the global south has said, we are dying. We are standing in line and waiting to die because of the inadequate supply and grossly inequitable distribution of these products. Untie our hands. Not only untie our hands by getting rid of the intellectual property barriers, but help us in building the capacity we need to make the supplies that are needed. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that the the idea that we've been able to, that the the companies would come to the kind of response that is needed through voluntary measures and through their own actions, uh, they haven't thus far. Um, and the situation is dire. And why would we expect that more of the same would produce a much better outcome? So um, I, I, I agree with, if Anna is saying uh, waving tomorrow will not put more vaccines in people's 
arms next week. I agree with her. Um, but I do think that we can set in in motion uh, a build out of, of capacity that could take place in a matter of months, not years. Uh, and um, Anne and I again have had you know we, we we hear different things about how much capacity there is, but we also have to remember that you know Moderna had never made a vaccine in its life. It didn't have any co- manu- commercial manufacturing capacity, and it's going to end up making 800 million doses this year. Uh, Pfizer had never made this kind of uh, uh, product previously, and and they're they're going to be making uh, you know hundreds of billions and, and even a couple billion doses. So uh, you know I, I think it is possible to scale things up. I think there is underutilized capacity, and there has to be some real there has to be a, a stick in someone's hand to make companies uh, uh, come to the table differently and uh, engage in technology transfer. The best outcome that I I, I would see is somewhat uh, between what uh, the two of us have already talked about. I think with a, a threat of a waiver, the companies would come to the table in a different way, and they would voluntarily agree to transfer technology in a more open way, in a quicker way, and governments could support the investment and repurposing of capacity that's needed. So that would be my hope, that that the waiver and the threat of the waiver and of, of involuntary action would actually cause a change in industry behavior that, that just leaving the status quo does not accomplish. Great, great. Thank you. Uh, Professor Richman, on one minute or less, what in any final uh, thoughts, what what one thing would you want to see happen to help us address this situation in the short term? I would like to focus attention on equitable distribution of existing doses. Again, the differences between vaccine technology as biologics and other types of drugs for which, uh, you know, the, the nudges that we've been discussing, even the threats of tinkering with intellectual property rights might prompt industry to do something. I don't see them working um, here, right? Uh, when Brazil said we will replicate this this drug, we all believed Brazil, right? The companies are very, very sure that uh, that might not be be the case. So I I would uh, recommend focusing even more attention than than we have on the allocation of existing doses while continuing continuing to work uh, in you know sort of backstage work. We absolutely need a fairer system. We need a, a much less market uh, dependent uh, system, and we need to get out of this situation that based on the characteristics of a technology, we might have uh, replicability um, problems. So I would want countries not to sit uh, on their supplies. I would love to see more international solidarity at this uh, point. And, and I do think there's uh, the capacity production-wise um, to, to start channeling vaccine doses to the arms who at this point, you know, the people really need them the most. So that's where I would be focusing on. Brooke, final word? Okay, so since we're in the U.S., I'm going to talk about the U.S., okay? And I'm going to talk specifically about the person with the most power to do something, which is President Biden. So, so the U.S. has surprisingly come out in support of a waiver on, on the vaccine, on intellectual property on the vaccine. I think that needs to be expanded to all uh, products, but I think uh, President Biden needs to use the bully puppet uh, a bit more to get other countries that are resistant, those in Europe, Japan, Switzerland, uh, Norway at this point, to also come to the table to engage in text-based negotiation. But the U.S. also has the power of the purse, and, and they have they have some intellectual, they have some patent rights to some of the MNRA vaccines. They have the Defense Production Act. They can actually get going on uh, putting much more pressure on industry to begin to transfer technology. Some of that could be, you know, uh, for internal domestic production. But we do have to invest now in uh, globalized production capacity so that other countries aren't always left behind. So so my call would be uh, to, to put pressure and, and including people who are listening to this particular message who have a public policy chops and, and may have access to centers of power 
important to this administration to put some pressure on to actually make the technology transfer happen. Uh, I, I'm completely with sharing more equity the doses that are available now and making different arrangements, but we also need more capacity. And, and that, that that won't happen unless someone starts pressuring to make it happen and starts funding and incentivizing the transfer that's necessary. Great, great, fantastic. Well, lots, lots of uh, critical things that need to happen uh, and lots of challenges in front of us. But thank you, Ana Santos Richman and Brooke Baker uh, for being with us today. And thank you uh, to everyone who's listening. Recordings of today's uh, session are available on the Public Health Law Watch website. And the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID-19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Khalik and Bethany Saxon. We'll see you next time. Everyone, please stay safe.